There are numerous professions in our culture that don't get enough credit, and, um, but I think one group particularly that gets passed over and passed by are the men and women who are EMTs, emergency medical technicians. Uh, special shout out to our friend Arlene. Uh, some of you who have been, you know what it's like to be in that hard position when you need to call 911, and then some folks just kind of show up, and you've never met them before, and they, they just go to work. Two things stand out to me about EMTs. They don't know what they're walking into. They just know it's an emergency, and then they, they walk in, they're looking around, they're asking people questions, they're putting together the answers that they receive. They're just sort of weaving an information tapestry to solve what they need to solve. Uh, info comes to them kind of from every direction, and they're figuring out what it is that they need to do. They just, they just go to work. They just do it. One of the other things is that, they, that they never do is they never assess the guilt or the fault of the person that they're helping. They just go to work, save the day. Well, we're in the middle of a series, part six actually, of a series where we're following Jesus from when he uh, stepped onto the pages of history as an adult on the banks of the Jordan River, all the way until that moment that he uh, served as the Savior for all humanity. We've said in this series uh, that there's this one part that we hope that you hang on to until the very end and then even beyond that. Jesus did not come to continue something that had begun a long time ago. Jesus came to introduce something that was absolutely standalone, brand new. He came to establish a brand new relationship between God and humanity. He came to initiate a new covenant. He came to give us a new command, the overarching ethic for all of our relationships, for all of our decisions, whether financial decisions, relational decisions, all decisions. And he came to start a brand new movement that we call the church. When he showed up, he immediately drew a crowd. And when he showed up, he immediately disturbed the status quo. Because where most of the people that were interested or followed Jesus, they sort of believed that he was just a continuation of something old. Perhaps he's just a new rabbi, right? He's got a new spin on Torah. Maybe, maybe he's here to bring some reform to the temple system, to our religious system. But there was a group that understood from day one that this is a troublemaker. This is someone who has come to disrupt. This is someone who is introducing not an add-on, not a continuation of, but something that is absolutely brand new. And that was the men who controlled the temple. The men who controlled the religious system, who controlled what happened in the temple, with people coming to the temple, with people leaving the temple. They understood in Jesus something that was absolutely true and that most people missed. This was something that was a total departure from everything that came before. Jesus was eventually arrested, and they tried to bring in witnesses uh, against him. And one of the things that they accused him of was inciting rebellion in the people. 
they saw something most people in their society didn't see. They saw something that most church people today don't see. So we left off uh, here last time. Jesus and his guys, they're walking through a wheat field. And as the hungry disciples start to break off heads of grain and eat them, it is brought to their attention that they are doing this on the Sabbath. No work of any kind on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees that are always hanging with the posse that Jesus is rolling with, they just jump on it right away. And they said, aha, we see what you're doing and you're doing something wrong. You're violating the Sabbath. And this gets them into an argument. And then finally, Jesus leans into them and he says, you're so concerned about the law. Me too. I'm a Jewish man. You're so concerned about the temple. Me too. I'm a Jewish man. But don't you recognize that something new has come? And then he leans in and he says something to them that is so offensive. And we just read right by it because it's not really offensive to us. He says to them, something greater than the temple is here. But if something was greater than the temple, then the temple was no longer necessary. The, the, the temple is the very center of Jewish life. The temple is where they house the Torah, the law. The temple has in it the holy of holies, and that is where God, in some way, resided and represented the people and protected the people. And Jesus makes a statement that makes no sense. Something greater than the temple is here? And he would predict in that moment something unbelievable, that something sacred, sacred, Sacred was always a place in the first century and before. Sacred was a place. Sacred was priests. Sacred was a text. Sacred was always sacred men in sacred places doing sacred things. And Jesus was beginning to let the world know that sacred would be commuted. It would be commuted to the hearts and to the minds and consciences of people. There would be no more sacred spaces, no more sacred places, because there would be nothing more sacred than the person that you were seated next to, the person that you work with, the children that you're raising, the person you've committed your life to, because the Spirit of God was going to leave the temple. The mobile God was going to and inhabit the hearts and the lives of people. And when that would happen, everything would change. And as a foreshadowing, he would spend time with the untouchable people. He would touch untouchable people. He would, he would invite a tax gatherer to be one of his followers. And then they went to visit the tax gatherer and eat in a tax gatherer's home. And even Jesus' followers weren't sure that they wanted to do that. That might just be a bridge too far. The tax gatherers, they're traitors to the nation. They're an embarrassment to their family. And Jesus says to Matthew, I want you to follow me. So Peter says, if, if he follows us, then I might just have to unfollow us because he's not my people. And Jesus said, that's my 
point. Sacred is about to be commuted. This disturbing of the peace and the disruption of the status quo was certainly threatening to some, but it was also intriguing to others. And most assumed, most assumed that Jesus, his endgame was that he would march into Jerusalem, probably around Passover, because there was always some unrest in Jerusalem around Passover. Everybody was on edge. Nerves are high. And people were always hoping that this, this would be the Passover, that God would do something spectacular and send Messiah. And everybody assumed that at some point, maybe Passover, Jesus will enter Jerusalem. And maybe then he will take off his rabbinic robe. And then we will all see the great big M on the shirt underneath, Messiah. And then then he would proclaim himself king and he would establish the nation of Israel as a kingdom of power, a kingdom of control once again, just like the good old days. Rome would be thrown outside the border and things would be restored to the way that they should be, like the time of King Solomon, like the time of King David. But the more discerning who listened to Jesus began to sense that something else was up with him he spoke with authority but he refused to take charge and almost immediately he won the crowd but refused a crown he had remarkable power and influence but over and over and over again he refused to leverage his power and his influence for his own sake he was intriguing now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. The Jewish ruling council was also known as AKA the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like the parliament and the Supreme Court kind of all rolled into one. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. That meant that he started at the lowest rung of the ladder in terms of religious political status. And because he was politically astute, perhaps, Perhaps because he was well-connected, perhaps. We don't know, but he made his way into this very elite group of powerful men. They served like the Supreme Court for all of Israel, the whole nation of Israel. They represented Israel to Rome. There was about 22 to 70 men, depending on the year, who sat on this council. So, it's interesting that John, who's writing this gospel, gives us his name because this is a verifiable detail. This, again, is like when the gospel writers are looking to their audience, maybe even looking to us, and they're saying, go ahead, fact check me. Verse 2, he came to Jesus at night. Now, we, did, did he come to Jesus at night because he was really busy during the day? Did he come to Jesus at night because he didn't want anyone to know that he was talking with Jesus? We don't know. But when you read the Gospels, what we do see is that you're left with the impression that getting a face-to-face, -face, a one-on-one -on -one with Jesus would be an incredibly difficult thing to do. Everywhere he went, there were the crowds, crowds that traveled with him, crowds that he arrived into. And everywhere he went, there were people who were trying to get in, to get to him, to get at him. So maybe Nicodemus knew a guy. Maybe he got a hookup. Maybe he got a phone-in radio show that gave him free tickets. We don't know, but eventually he got this meeting with Jesus. 
and he sits down, they meet at night, and Nicodemus shows up with a question. I bet that he probably showed up with like a parchment full of questions, but he never got to ask his questions. He said, Rabbi, and Rabbi here would be a term of respect, but you know what? There's a lot of rabbis. So Rabbi, we know. That is, we are certain. And he represents a group of people. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God. This is a huge thing for Nicodemus to say. You don't fit in a box. Um, you, don't, you don't look like what we were expecting. You're not in the category that we're looking for. You're not, frankly, very Messiah-like as far as we're concerned. But one thing that we cannot deny, clearly you have come from God. And the reason that we can say that you have come from God, it's not just because of what you say. For no one could perform the signs. Now this is important too. We think of some of the things that Jesus did as miracles or magic tricks. But the astute, the people who were paying attention understood that when Jesus healed people, it wasn't just miracles. Every one of Jesus' healings, every single one of his supernatural acts were actually a sign pointing in a direction. And Nicodemus was an educated man. He understood that these things that Jesus was doing, they're not just willy-nilly. He's not just meeting needs. He's not some magic cosmic vending machine giving away free candy for a, a while. There is a method to this. This is going somewhere. And it was clear to Nicodemus that these signs were pointing clearly in a direction that must point to God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. That was his preamble. That was sort of the introduction. Is, hey, Jesus, how you doing? Then Nicodemus, I think, takes his breath, and he gets ready to ask his big question. And then Jesus does that Jesus thing that Jesus does when he answers the question before the questioner gets a chance to answer, to ask the question. And then he, he answers it and then redirects the conversation. So verse 3, he, Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. You know I come from God, but I don't talk or behave like other people consider to be very godly. I have a different perspective. My categories seem to be much larger than standard traditional Jewish categories. So just let me jump in right to the heart of the matter. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And this is confusing to Nicodemus, and not just to Nicodemus, right? What do you mean I can't see the kingdom of God? I'm Jewish. I was born Jewish, and I've lived Jewish my whole life. We are God's people. We are God's kingdom. And by the time the first century had rolled around, it was a well-established belief that the kingdom of God was synonymous with the people of Israel. Certainly the people in Israel thought this. They mean the same thing. What do you mean I won't even recognize the kingdom of God? Of course I do. I was born into it. And Jesus says, no, you have to be born again. Or literally be born from above. And Nicodemus, welcome to the kingdom of Israel. But to get into the kingdom of God, there's a second requirement. You have to be born again. 
Now, this might have brought about kind of a chuckle, right? I don't know exactly what you're doing here, Jesus. Are you just messing with me? You're playing with me? We're just having fun? How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. He doesn't seem to know what Jesus is saying. And again, he's not alone in that, right? Most people would not understand what Jesus was saying. And then what he really wanted to say was, and Jesus, why are we talking about this at all? This is not what I came. This is not what I set up this meeting to be about. I don't want to talk about this. This might be my only opportunity to speak to you one-on-one. I've got questions. I've got people waiting for me to come back with answers to their questions. Maybe we could just get back to my questions. Jesus, if you want me to help you with my political influence, then help me out here, right? Help me help you, Jesus. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God. First, you can't see the kingdom of God. Second, no one can enter the kingdom of God. They won't recognize it and they will never get in unless they are born of water and the Spirit. And Nicodemus is thinking like, geez, where is this going, right? I don't know. And Jesus keeps going. Verse 6, he says, flesh gives birth to flesh. And so Jewish people give birth to Jewish people. Philistine people give birth to Philistine people, right? Romans have Romans. Greeks have Greeks. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Your Jewishness Your flesh has gotten you into the kingdom of Israel. Congratulations! Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. It takes something more. It takes something else. You can be born into the kingdom of Israel, but it takes something more to be given entrance to the kingdom of God. Verse 7, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it is going from where where it is going. Yeah. Uh, So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. There's a little bit of wordplay here that you need to know about. The word spirit and the word wind are actually just so happen to be the same word. He says the Spirit is like the wind. You know there's wind. You see the effects of the wind. You hear the wind. But you don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going. So it is with the Spirit of God. And what he's getting at is that Nicodemus, in his first century Jewish context, the only context that he could have, Nicodemus, I understand, many, many years ago, our forefather Abraham, God made a promise to make him a family and then to make him a great nation. And then he blessed the whole world through that nation. And sure enough, you and I are living in the day and age where the family is a nation. And we're part of the kingdom of Israel. God then, through Moses, made an exclusive covenant with our people. All those commandments, all those rules, all those regulations. God made an exclusive covenant with our people. But Nicodemus, God is not exclusive. He's like the wind. He's like the Spirit. He moves outside the confines of people's covenant with Him. And yes, while we are locked into an arrangement with God, God is not limited 
by his arrangement. God is a mobile God. God does not live inside the temple. God is spirit. And our nation, Israel, it's a means to an end. And the entire world will be given an invitation to be part of the kingdom of God. There will be people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. His invitation extended to everyone. And the entrance into the kingdom of God requires a second birth, a spiritual birth. So, like us, probably Nicodemus didn't really have a category for any of this. And so verse 9, he says, how can this be? How did I miss this? Verse 10, Jesus goes on. You are Israel's teacher. And do you not understand these things? Everyone is looking to you for guidance. You are one of the big boys. You are in the Sanhedrin. Conversation goes on. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes not so much. Nicodemus is getting so much new information, but he's not resistant. He's like some of you. He hasn't, he hasn't gotten it. There's so many questions. He's not resisting. He says, I want to understand. I'm just not getting it. Jesus gets to something. It's common ground, okay? Common ground for him and Nicodemus. And here's something he can latch on to. Down at verse 14, just as Moses. Nicodemus says, okay, finally, Moses, I got that. I know Moses. Moses, I got. Moses is the covenant maker. He's the command giver. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. Nicodemus is feeling a little bit more comfortable, right? All that confusing stuff, now stories that I know. I know this story. I taught this story. The nation was moving from Egypt on the way to the promised land, and they went through a desert, and they came to an area in the desert that's full with all these snakes. People were getting snake bitten. Some of the snakes were poisonous. Some of the people are sick. Some of the people are even dying. And then Moses makes a bronze snake and puts it on a pole. You've seen this image somewhere, I'm sure. We now call it a caduceus, and we use it as a symbol for healthcare. They go through the area, and the people are saved. And Nicodemus says again, yeah, I know that story. I know that thing that we're talking about there. Jesus continues, as the Son of Man must be lifted, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, like the bronze snake on the pole. And Nicodemus is triggered. Son of Man? Did he just say Son of Man? You don't call yourself the Son of Man. That's code for Messiah. Son of Man, that's code for the one that we've been waiting for, for a really long time. And if you put a man on a pole, clearly that man is cursed by God. Because when a man hangs from a tree or a man is impaled on a pole or if a man is, I don't know, hoisted up on a Roman cross, the man who's on the pole or on that cross, that's the sign of a curse. Are you telling me that the Son of Man, that the Messiah is going to suffer? The Messiah is going to be cursed by God? Come on, Jesus, I want to understand. I'm here asking questions. I, I just don't understand. And so Jesus continues, verse 15, he says, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Whoa, 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 everyone? Come on, everyone, Jesus? 
Oh, how about the Jews, right? Eternal life? We know how you get eternal life, right? You love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's how you get eternal life. You keep the commandments. That's how you get eternal life. You do what God asked us to do at Mount Sinai. But now, you are saying that somehow eternal life is going to be available to who was it again? To everyone? Everyone will have access to God? Everyone can have access to eternal life? Because the Messiah is going to be put up on a pole? Signifying that he's cursed by God? Oh, this is hard to understand, Jesus. So let me just uh, hit pause here for a second. When you're reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's very important that you remember that much of Jesus' teaching didn't make sense until after the resurrection. Just stop and think about it, okay? These events actually happened in history. Matthew, eyewitness. Mark, good friend with Peter, also eyewitness. Uh, Luke, who fully investigated all of these things. John, an eyewitness. They are documenting what they saw, what they experienced, or what the eyewitnesses that they are talking to have seen and witnessed. And they're documenting it all after it's all over with. So every once in a while in the Gospels, the writers will pause the story. They pause the conversation in the middle. They stop the video and comment on it. They just pull out and they make comments on what is happening in the narrative that they're writing about. And we do this all the time when we tell stories, right? This is also uh, what we referred to last episode. Do you remember that? We talked about adding commentary to events. You don't remember that? Okay, go back and listen. Part five. When we're telling a story, you're kind of walking through what happens, and then you say, yeah, but he didn't know. Or later they would discover that. Then we go back into the story and continue telling it. Well, the gospel writers do the same thing, and they do this all the time. They pause the story, comment on what they know, what the audience in the story didn't know because they hadn't gotten to the end of the story yet. So I'm going to give you an example of what this looks like, and then we're going to go back and catch up with Nicodemus and Jesus. Okay? So here's an illustration. It's from the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke here is quoting Jesus, Luke chapter 9. Then he's going to pull out, he's going to make a comment on what Jesus just said, because he wants the readers to know the people in the time didn't know, but he wants you to know because you're reading it. Okay, so here's just an example. Luke is quoting Jesus, 944, Luke 944. He says, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So Luke says, that's, that's what Jesus just said, okay? Then Luke hits pause, telling his audience on what Jesus said, and then he adds this comment, director commentary. Luke's words, not Jesus' words, verse 45, but they did not understand what this meant. We do this kind of thing all the time. This is important. This is why you should take the Gospels seriously. This was not a writing motif. This is not the way that stories were written when you're writing fiction. When you read 
these nitty-gritty details that we so frequently just zoom on by. The, the ins and outs of all these stories. This stuff was not written decades and decades later. This was not written way after the fact. This was written exactly like someone who was trying to just get all the facts out. But at the same time, keep his readers engaged with the story. So the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. John, who's documents this for us, he does that very same thing right now. In the middle. Pauses the story. Jesus and Nicodemus, hold on a second. He pulls out to make sure that those of us who are, who are reading the story understand what's going on. Understand what Jesus is talking about. Understand how it works out later on. And Nicodemus... He doesn't get what Jesus is getting at. John, who was there, didn't know what Jesus was getting at either. Because Jesus was pointing to something that hadn't happened yet. Something that nobody had a category for. Suffering, dying, stuck on a pole, Messiah. Nobody was looking for that. Nobody was waiting for that. That's a bad ending to the wrong story. So John pulls out temporarily so that John can tell us in his own words what Jesus was explaining to Nicodemus who couldn't possibly understand it because it hadn't happened yet. But for John, when he realized later on and he's looking back on this conversation, he realizes how important this conversation was and he doesn't want you to miss it. He doesn't want his reader to miss it. The reader would eventually get to the end of the story. The original readers of the Gospel of John had already heard the story. They just hadn't read the story. And this is the coolest thing about it, okay? Little did he know, yeah, he had no idea that he would dictate. He probably was not the physical writer. Uh, he would dictate to a scribe. Little did he know that he would dictate 26 words that would reverberate around the world for millennia. For thousands of years, his words would survive and be translated into almost every known language, and they would appear in every country of the entire world, way beyond the Roman Empire, way beyond the temple. 26 words that would change the world that his friend had come to save. So he pauses between the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And it's like he's saying to you, do you see? I want you to understand. This is what he's talking about. For God so loved the world that he gave. He hasn't given it yet. That's why Nicodemus can't figure it out. No one could figure out how the Messiah would suffer and die. That he gave his one and only son. And then he struggles. How exactly should I say this? He uses a little Greek word. It's a conjunction. It's a, it's a connection word. And it means in order that. And then, and then John does something unprecedented. In all of Greek literature, no one had ever taken the Greek verb believe and connected it to this preposition. It's like John is saying, I just have to get this right. It's not whoever believes that. 
It's not about believing facts. Whoever believes, there's no Greek word for trust. It's just believe. So the scribe says, no, you, you, you can't say it like that. And, and John says, yeah, I, I want to say it that way. It's not good grammar, but, but it's more clear. We, we know it's not good grammar because this phrase does not show up in Greek literature until it appears in John's gospel. John says, do it this way anyway, that whoever believes in, as in trusts in, shall not perish, will not perish, will not be lost, will not be lost to God. Then it's the strongest possible contrasting word, but will have eternal life. Write it that way. He had no idea. This is very important, especially if you've left church or if you're not a Christian or if you kind of believe in the idea that the Bible's full of mistakes. In this moment, John is not writing the Bible. The Bible, ta biblia, it doesn't show up until the fourth century when all of the documents get collected. They got put together with the Jewish scriptures that we call the Old Testament, and then they put this fancy gold binding kind of around the whole thing, all of the books together. There you go. That's ta biblia. But John's not writing the Bible. This has nothing to do with the Bible. This is a man who saw things that would blow our minds. And at the end of the story, he's got to document it because he's one of the only few living people left who was there for the whole thing. So he gets a scribe to help him because he doesn't want it in Aramaic. He doesn't want it in Hebrew. He wants it in Greek. And do you know why he wants it in Greek? Because Greek was the language of the Roman Empire. Not the official Roman bureaucratic language, that's Latin. But the language of the majority of the people throughout the entire empire. It wasn't the language of Palestine. John knew that this message was for the whole world. So let's get it in a language that the whole world can understand. And then John says this, just one more thing. Just one more thing before I get back to the story. I, th this can't wait until the end. You need to know this part right up front. So don't miss this. I want to make this part really clear. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus's whole worldview was when Messiah comes, we're going to throw the invaders out. So John asked. These are his words. Verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. God didn't send Messiah into the world to judge the world. God didn't send Messiah into the world to line up all of the sinners and tell them all about their sins. He didn't come to the scene of an accident and lecture those who had been injured. I have. The church has. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. But to save the world through him, he showed up just like an EMT and he got to work. And when he realized that this world needed a blood transfusion, he used his own. 
Suddenly we're thrown back. Back to day one. We're going, John the Baptist banks to the Jordan River and everybody's waiting because John is going to tell him something big. He's been telling him something big's about to happen. And John tells everybody who's been looking at him, he says, look, look at him from now on. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John is writing this now. Different John. And he's thinking, oh, we should have seen it. How did we miss it? We should have put two and two together. But I want to make sure that my readers get it before the end for God, not just Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave. When you love, giving is just what you do, isn't it? When you love, you give. That's what you do when you love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, not just believes that. You don't become a Christian because of faith. You become a Christian because all of the evidence points to the fact that Jesus is who he claimed to be. That's why you become a Christian. You don't become a Christian because of faith. That's not very relational. It's distant. You become a Christian by faith, by placing your trust in Jesus. That transaction is how you get connected. It's a very relational concept. That's how you get connected to the kingdom of God. That whoever believes in Him won't be lost to God, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Instead of perishing, there is life. A different kind of life. Eternal life. You will be born as Jesus was trying to to explain to Nicodemus, you will be born again into a new family. And in this new family, you have the privilege and the pleasure to call God your father. Years later, another Pharisee, a Pharisee who claimed to be the best Pharisee of all time, who tried to put the church out of business, who then became a Jesus follower. He's looking back after the resurrection. He's looking back on the whole story again. And he's trying to put pieces together too. And this is how he says it. This is how I see it. It's as if God is inviting you to participate in an adoption process. But you're not the one doing the adoption. You're the one being adopted. And you get to choose whether or not you want to be adopted. And if you say yes, God is more than happy to adopt you into his family because of what Christ has done on the front end to make that possible. Now, when we explain John 3.16 to to children, here's how we, we can explain it. God loved, God gave, we believe, we receive. Starts with God, starts with love. God loved, so what do we do? We believe. We trust in. We trust in not believe that. We trust in Jesus. We believe. We receive. Getting into the kingdom of God is not about D-O, do. It is about D-O-N-E, done. God loved. God gave. He did all the heavy lifting and he says it's an invitation that I'm inviting you to accept. Back to Nicodemus and Jesus. 
We don't know exactly uh, what Nicodemus made of this whole conversation. There's no response card filled out at the end. He kind of just wanders off, all right? His questions didn't get answered. He goes, I don't know, something about a Messiah being lifted up on a pole. Not really sure what he was talking about. It's like we were speaking different languages. But eventually, Nick got it. Here's how we know. After Jesus was crucified, Nick's at the back of the crowd, no doubt. Okay? He's part of the Sanhedrin, and they are kind of responsible for the whole Passover event that's going on. Can you imagine this moment? Standing there, and all he sees is kind of tops of heads. And he knows that Jesus has been arrested. He's sure that Jesus has come from God. And this is, oh, this is not the ending that we were expecting. He's just peeking over the heads of people. And suddenly, lifted up at the front of the crowd, Jesus appears now, hanging on the cross. That's what he said. Cursed by God. Abandoned by his own people. Not the end of the story that any of us anticipated, but exactly what Jesus predicted. And when Jesus is dead, Nicodemus risks his reputation again. Maybe he even risked his life. We know that he definitely risked his position of power. Nick and a guy named Joe. Joseph of Arimathea. Lots of detail again. You don't believe the story? Go check it out. Here are the names. Go check them out. These two guys believe that Jesus came from God. This, this is not how we thought this was going to end. But this man certainly deserves to have more happen for his body than to be thrown into the human garbage pile for the dogs to come and eat. And so they go to Pilate. They probably have to grease the wheels, but they probably have to leave some coins behind with Pilate to say, we would like to have that body. Because it's against the law to bury the body of someone who was crucified. And Pilate gives them permission to take the body. And the sun's going down now, and the Sabbath is about to begin. And so they take about 100 plus pounds of stuff, which means they probably had to take two or three servants with them. They get to this tomb that had never been used before. And Joseph of Arimathea's wife is like, uh, honey, wait, 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 wait. Are you sure you want to use our tomb. I mean, it's all cleaned out. It's looked good. It's for our family. Um, Joseph, are you sure? And he's like, yes. I don't know exactly who this guy was, but he deserves better than this. So we're going to use our tomb. And so they prepare the body, but they have to do it in a hurry. So it's just as best they can. Big hurry. Got to beat the sun down. They put him in and then, and then they roll the stone in front to seal it so that animals won't get in. And eventually that body will deteriorate until there's nothing left but the bones. And then we'll go back and we'll take the bones and we'll put them in an ossuary. And then we'll give that to a family member or bury it somewhere. And Nicodemus participated in this. He didn't have all the answers to all of his questions. But he knew enough to know that this man had come from God. And maybe that's you. You'll always have questions. And I'll never have all the answers. But if you know that you know, 
if there's something that when you hear this story, it stirs your heart. And maybe that's been stirring in your heart for weeks or months or years. You've heard it. You've heard it. You come and you go. But today, maybe, for the first time, the parts connected. The lights went on. And today, if you're like Nicodemus, I know enough that Jesus came from God, then I want to invite you to do what John, who was a witness to the entire story, suggests that we all do. That everyone in the whole world do. That was the point. That was why he wrote his gospel. This was the point of Jesus coming at all. I think he'd say to you, would you do what I've suggested? Nicodemus did. Joseph of Arimathea did. And millions and millions of people then did. Would you be willing to believe and receive? The invitation's already open because God already loved and God already gave. Nicodemus couldn't put it together because it hadn't happened yet. But it's so clear to us because we're on the other side of the resurrection. So I want to invite you today to consider, would you today do what Nicodemus ultimately did? What John encouraged us to do? Jesus came so that we would have the privilege to do. Would you believe? Would you trust him? Would you receive Jesus as your Savior? Pray with me. Kind Father, I thank you for what you have put together for us on my behalf on our behalf. I thank you for the life of Jesus. I thank you for the way that it it tells us so much about what you're like. God loved. God gave. My step is to believe and receive. And so for my friends that are here with me and here watching with me, I pray that your spirit would speak now. Are we at a place of understanding? And if we are, God, I pray that you would create this relationship, that you would connect us to your kingdom to help that process. If this is where we are, we could say something like, God, I believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. I believe that he's the son of God. I believe that he came so that I could connect to you. And I've got this stuff in the way. Some people call it sin. And I want to I walk away from that. I want to... Leave that behind. And I, I want to give you my life so that you can give me that, that gift of being born again, a new life with you, trusting in you. I believe Jesus was the Son of God, is the Son of God. I believe that he died for my sin. I want to walk away from that sin and I want that gift that you offer me. I want that adoption that you say can be mine. I want you to be my father. And so I leave that. I turn away from that sin stuff. And I give you my life. Thank you for giving me new life. If this is something that uh, is a new place for you, then, then, then God, I, I pray for these folks that are responding that you would uh, seal this for them. And that they would follow up with a relational side that uh, either come and talk to us today or 
if you're watching, send us a private message and we'd love to connect with you and, and help you with that. But Lord Jesus, in this place, in this space, we all need the next step from here. Once that's been taken care of, we still have a living outside to do. And so for your spirit, I pray that you would infill us once again, give us the delight of life, the ability to share what we have been given, Speak to me that you might speak through me. And we look forward to seeing how you will move us forward in the days ahead. Thank you for being with us today, Jesus. Amen.